if you're saying that that there's no you know you can guarantee that there's no relationship between what we experience you know, in terms of neurons and connections between neurons and what's actually going on then why are you saying you're in favor of predictive processing because that's a theory constructed in terms of neurons and connections between them which according to you has no validity in this interview i'm joined by two of the world's leading researchers into the scientific study of consciousness professor donald hoffman and professor Anil seth Donald is Professor Emeritus of Cognitive Sciences at the University of California and the author of over 100 scientific papers and three books, including Visual Intelligence and The Case Against Reality. Anil is Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at the University of Sussex, where he is also Director of the Sussex Centre for Consciousness Science. His new book, Being You, has won several awards and was a Sunday Times bestseller. This conversation explores parallels in their theories of consciousness but also the areas where their thinking diverges. The topics covered include how the reality we experience every day is an illusion, whether or not artificial intelligence will ever become conscious, mathematical proof that the space-time paradigm is doomed and the early research investigating what might be underneath, the practical implications of Donald's and Annal's theories, both for society and for everyday life, and more. You can learn more about Annal's work at annalseth.com and follow Donald on X at Donald D. Hoffman. Okay, welcome to the show. I'm joined here by Professor Donald Hoffman and Pro Professor Anil Seth. To get started, um, I want to ask you both just to give us a a brief introduction to your theory of consciousness, maybe give us a, a work, your working definition of consciousness and the major assumptions that your theories are built upon. So let's start this one with Donald and then we'll move to Arnold. Okay. Well, I, I take consciousness in, to intuitively be the, you know, what it feels like to, to experience things, to have a headache, feel love um, and so forth. Uh, see the color green, taste chocolate. So, so the everyday common experiences, uh, like I, is what I mean by consciousness. Also, the sense of a self—that's that's part of being conscious. And I—I uh, I think that you know my my theory of consciousness going into it is is quite a bit. But I'll I'll, I'll say that I um of course I, I I'm a cognitive neuroscientist. I'm very interested in brain activity and how the brain functions. And the relationship between conscious experiences and, and brain activity. And uh, like, like Anil, I'm very much interested in predictive processing models of the brain and, and Bayesian inference models and, and so forth. So, so that that all figures in in what I'm thinking about when I think about the theory of consciousness. Also, I, I'm thinking about it in evolutionary terms, using evolution of natural selection to understand, you know, the relationship of consciousness to the physical world and, and also modern energy theoretical physics. So I'm looking at how all these things work together as we try to understand what is consciousness in this relationship to the brain and, and space-time. And my conclusion, and I'm sure we'll have a fun discussion of this, is that, well, first, um, in agreement with Anil, I, I think that um, per perception is a predictive process so that we, we don't just see reality as it is, we see reality um, um, some, somewhat projected out there based on the priors that we bring to the situation. So not, not just the data coming into the senses, but 
our prior expectations. And so I've asked myself, what what does evolution have to say about this? And and what is the probability that the priors that are built into us would actually give us um, conceptions of the external world that are actually valid, that, that are actually tell us truths about the nature of objective reality? And uh, it, 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 we published a couple of papers which basically say that it's it's a theorem of evolution that the probability that any sensory system has ever been shaped to see any aspect of reality truly is zero. So our, in other words, the probability that our perception of the world in terms of, of space and time and physical objects in space and time and, and things like brains and neurons, the probability that that's in any way remotely like the, the true nature of objective reality is precisely zero if we take evolution by natural selection seriously. So given that, my, my view is that, and, and then my, the other aspect of my view is what high energy theoretical physics is saying. They're saying now uh, in the last 20 years that the probability that space-time is fundamental is zero. Space-time is doomed. So that space-time is not fundamental. Objects like protons, electrons, or even neurons inside space-time are not part of the fundamental aspects of objective reality. And they're finding new structures beyond space-time. So they're they're jumping outside of space-time just in the last 10 years. So this is not even well-known by most physicists. It's this special branch of physics, high-energy theoretical physicists, who in the last 10 years have found what they call positive geometries. And it's now exploded. This month is the launch of a 10 million euro um, project, multinational project, for to, to go after these structures entirely outside of space-time that are more fundamental than space-time. And it, so it's, it's a revolution. And so, so when you look at evolution by natural selection and we look at high-energy theoretical physics, the idea that objects in space-time are fundamental just disappears. And that includes brains and neurons. So what I'm doing is looking at a theory for, of consciousness on its own terms. What is consciousness just, can we give a mathematical model of consciousness, not as something that you know is secondary to neurons and rises from neurons or secondary to some kind of you know integrated information, substrate and it and arises from that. Can we give a theory of, of consciousness on its own terms? And so we've proposed a, a Markovian dynamical system uh, model of consciousness, not as entities in space-time, not as entities deriving from some more fundamental substrate, but as entities that are fundamental in their own right. And then our, our goal is to start with this dynamics of conscious agents and show that it actually can give rise to the positive geometries that the physicists are finding beyond space-time. So that's, that's our goal. A theory of consciousness outside of space-time that can then map into the positive geometries that have uh, been found in the last 10 years. And then from that can give us give rise to space-time because the physicists have done that part. They can go from positive geometries and give us space-time and physical objects in space-time. So the idea is to turn the whole story around. Consciousness is fundamental. Predictive processing is correct. We don't see the world as it is. We see it as we project it. And evolution says that our projection is an entire fiction. It's not anything like objective reality. It's just a useful fiction that keeps us alive. And so, so now the, the goal is then to have a theory of consciousness, qua consciousness, and show that space-time and brains and neurons arise from a deeper theory of consciousness, not vice versa. So, so I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about, but that's top level and we can then go into the details.
And just before we go to Anil, I want to ask um, Donald, if you don't mind, could you just, to make this more concrete for people, could you share us just a metaphor about the desktop user interface and its relevance for understanding con consciousness here? Right. So an obvious, uh, you know, objection to what I just said is, well, if evolution didn't shape us to see reality as it is, it certainly wouldn't make us more fit. Surely it's more fit to see the, something like the truth as opposed to not seeing something like the truth. So how could you possibly have this theorem that says that evolution shaped us not to say the truth? It's obviously nonsense. And it's also self-refuting. We can go into that. Some There are philosophers who say that's actually a self-refuting argument. But on but here's a metaphor to help you understand. If you're trying to um, use a computer to send a, a photograph to a friend or send a text, um, you know what you're really doing, if you were looking at the innards of the computer, you're toggling millions of voltages in a precise order. That's what you're doing to actually send a photo to your friend. Now, if you had to actually toggle those millions of voltages yourself in a precise order to send that, you would never use it. You, it would never get done. So, so the user interface, your desktop interface on your, your laptop or your phone or whatever is there to hide the truth. And by hiding the truth, it, it, it actually, actually makes you more fit. It makes you more functional. It allows you to control reality. So you actually are toggling those millions of voltages. And you're toggling the way you want, the way you need to, but you don't have no idea what you're doing in reality. So that's what evolution did for us. Um, it's it would have been too expensive to actually you know, for for organisms to actually know all the details of reality they would need to to know to would be way too expensive. So evolution does things on the cheap, and it it, it gave you a cheap user interface that completely hides the truth. Um, and but allows you to um, control objective reality, even though you're utterly and completely ignorant about the nature of that reality. So, so that's the, the sort of the desktop uh, or, or virtual reality headset. You can think of it as a VR headset interface uh, as well. So, awesome. Thanks for sharing. Okay, Arnold, I will move to you now. <laughs> well, I mean, my ideas are going to seem very prosaic and mundane in contrast with this. This very poetic. Uh, reconceptualization of, of physics the universe and, and consciousness and everything within it but there, there are some points of contact for sure so you know i think the simplest way to start is is with that point of contact don mentioned the idea of the predictive brain predictive processing and that's a good starting point for the way i've been thinking and working about on consciousness too and it starts from the idea that really instead of trying to solve this mystery of consciousness head on as, as one big scary mystery in search of one big solution. Now, like the, the Chalmers hard problem often sets it up this way that how is it possible that physical processing, things like brains, bodies, whatever, um, give rise to or are identical to conscious experiences of, of any kind? That seems to be a very big mystery in search of a, a very dramatic solution. And Don is presenting us with a candidate solution, I think, to that in it in a sense, by you know, finding some deeper layer that that's, explains both. Um, now, I sort of start a little bit more pragmatically, maybe, by thinking that, okay, consciousness exists, and by consciousness, you know, I mean the same thing Don means, that it's, it's, in the words of the philosopher Thomas Nagel, for a conscious organism, there is something it is like to be that organism. It feels like something to be me, to be you. Uh, and so it's not the same as intelligence or language or behavior of any particular kind. It's the raw fact of experiencing. 
there are many different ways in which this is manifest for human beings, let's say, differently for other animals. We have experiences of the world around us and of being a self within it. How do we account for those experiences? Um, this is where the predictive processing angle comes in for me. And the overall hope for me, I think this is where it's one difference with, with Don already, is that you know, I think just by using tools like predictive processing, predictive brain, to build explanatory bridges between neural circuits and properties of consciousness, you know, we will dissolve this hard problem of consciousness, even though if we don't directly solve it, it might just go away in, in, a, in a similar way to this apparent mystery of life, mostly went away as people stopped searching for a spark of life and just got on with the job of explaining the properties of living systems in terms of physics and chemistry, which is what happened in, in biology. So I am agnostic about whether there is a hard problem, or if so, whether it can be solved. But I don't think it's necessary to attack it head on. I think we can go this pragmatic route of explaining the properties of consciousness in terms of mechanisms and see how far we get. And no doubt the questions we will ask will change and the sensory sense of mystery may change and, and lessen as well. So that's the overall approach. The predictive brain idea is one pillar of that approach. There are other pillars as well, measures of complexity to try and understand changes in global conscious state, things like that. Um, but the predictive brain is, is where I, I put most of my energy. And this is the idea, as, as nicely put by, by Don, that um, the world as it appears to us in conscious experience is not the world as it is. It is um, it's only indirectly related to whatever is really out there objectively. So I'm a kind of realist. I think that you know, there is stuff out there, whatever that is. Um, don't really know what that is. Don's in contact with leading physicists who have ideas about that. Um, but the brain is, is faced with this task of making some sense of the sensory signals that it gets in order to stay alive. And one way to do that is for the brain to kind of infer the most likely causes of its sensory inputs. And um, this is a sort of process of Bayesian inference, like how do I figure out what the most likely causes of the inputs that I'm getting? Um, and one way to approximate Bayesian inference is to make predictions about what's out there and to use the sensory data to update those predictions. This is basically predictive processing, and there's lots of additional bells and whistles. Um, but for present purposes, the key claim that I'm making is that what we consciously experience is not a readout of the sensory information. It's the predictions. It's this sort of outside, pr predominantly outside in top down flow of predictions that carries the content of what we experience, even though it doesn't seem like that. It seems to us, you know, that the world is just there and we register it transparently through our, through the windows of our senses. Um, so this is very much in agreement with, with Don's point about this indirect, um, experiential relationship we have uh then i think the same thing applies to the self as well the self is another aspect of perceptual experience it's not the thing that does the perceiving it is an aspect of consciousness itself and you know the the way my thinking goes is that it's constructed by the same sorts of mechanisms it's this dance of prediction and prediction error but now the predictions are about the body about the causes of self-generated actions, which underlie experiences of free will, um, about where the first-person perspective is, and so on. And if you pull on this thread long enough, 
um, again, taking an evolutionary perspective, but from a, in a slightly different direction, being able to make predictions about the causes of sensory signals is an extremely good way of implementing control and regulation over those causes and over those signals. Um, and if we think about what brains are fundamentally for and what they likely evolved to be able to do, it wasn't to see the world as it is, or even really to see anything. It's to control and regulate the body, to keep the body and therefore the brain alive. So in my view, and it, the, the reason we have predictive brains originated in light of this fundamental biological imperative for homeostasis, for allostasis, which is homeostasis over time, keeping the physiological condition of our bodies within the tight bounds compatible with survival. And this is an imperative that goes right down into our, into the depths of our physiology, into individual cells. So a distinguishing aspect of the way I'm thinking is that consciousness is intimately related to our nature as living systems. It is not a kind of software program implemented on a meat-based computer that's wedged in between our, our ears. So there's this intimate relationship between life and consciousness. Um, and you know, that makes some predictions that, you know, living things, perhaps only living things can be conscious. Certainly that we won't understand consciousness except in light of um, our nature as living creatures. And so I think to wrap it up by understanding, building models. So we take a kind of computational phenomenology approach in my group, um, at least partly, which is to build computational models that explain why particular experiences are the way they are. And why vision is the way it is and not some other way. Why particular visual experiences have the character that they do. So we make models of visual hallucinations of different sorts. Um, and we try and really you know, empirically uh, elucidate this link between predictive mechanisms in the brain and the character of conscious experiences um, for, for human beings. And I think by doing that, then... Um, we will make progress on this problem of consciousness. And I think it is a bit of an open question, the extent to which the sense of mystery will remain or dissolve entirely. Very cool. Thank, thanks, Anil. No, you hint, hinted at it there that the for, for consciousness to happen, um, you require a living thing or you require a living organism. Um, and I think this... I'm not sure, but this might be a point of disagreement between between you and Donald. Um, so can we just maybe cover this? Like, Donald, what are your thoughts on this? Do you, does consciousness require living organisms to happen, or is it beyond that? Well, for, first, again, I agree with Anil about the importance of the predictive processing kind of approach and the, the constructive nature of perception and and building computational models of 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 that process. I mean, there's nothing better than actually building computational models where you say, here's how we construct uh, this perception of space or or this object or these colors or whatever it might be. You get down and dirty and actually build them. So, so yeah, we agree on that. I, I think that among the things that we build are, you know, through perception is when we open up skulls and look inside, we, we construct things that we call brains and neurons. Those are, are not exempt. Those themselves are also products of um, perceptual construction. And we have to ask, how literally should we take those things? Should we take 
when we see neurons, when we look through microscopes, well, how, you know, we know that perception is construction. What is the probability, given our understanding of evolutionary theory, that the neurons that we see when we look inside brains are in fact telling us, the, the, the perception of neurons is telling us something true about the world, namely that maybe there are things called, that we would call neurons out there in the objective world. And that's, that's a, a clean technical question, right? It's, it's not philosophy. We can ask, you know, using evolutionary game theory, what is the probability that if I see a neuron, that means in objective reality, there are neurons out there. I think that's, you know, I think that is a philosophical question. By the way, I'm not sure you answered Niall's question about the necessity of life before we get onto that. Sure, I, no, I agree with you. So I, I should say the arguments I'm giving are going to support the idea that consciousness is prior to anything inside space-time, right? So I'm, I'm going to be arguing that 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 brains and neurons don't exist when they're not perceived, and that that for that reason, I'm going to then postulate that consciousness exists prior to any to even space-time, much less the contents of space-time. So so that's why I was going for the the evolutionary argument to say that it's in the very structure of of evolutionary game theory that the fitness payoff functions, so the fitness payoff functions that guide evolution, turn out, you can, you can prove that those functions almost surely do not have the information necessary to shape evolution to, to show us any aspects of objective reality, right? It's, it's, a, it's a theorem that the probability that, any fitness, that, that fitness payoffs contain information about any aspect of objective reality is zero. So that, so that the predictive processing models, in fact, perhaps don't really capture how deep the issue is that 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 there's nothing in, ev in current evolutionary theory now we may have to change evolutionary theory but there's nothing in current evolutionary theory that gives us anything but zero probability uh, that that our predictive processing leads to anything that's homomorphic to the structure of reality so to summarize i'm just i'm confused sorry now we'll get but i am a bit confused already because if you're saying that that there's no you know, you can guarantee that there's no relationship between what we experience you know, in terms of neurons and connections between neurons and what's actually going on. Then why are you saying you're in favor of predictive processing? Because that's a theory constructed in terms of neurons and connections between them, which, according to you, has no validity. Well, so the predictive processing is, is not primarily a theory about neurons. It's primarily based on Bayesian inference. So it's primarily based on, you know, as, as you well know, I mean, I, you, you give lectures on this yourself about Bayes' rule and, and so forth. We then look at for an instantiation of that kind of predictive processing within neural networks. But the theory itself is is um, uh, implementation independent, right? It well, depend I mean, Bayesian inferences, but predictive processing, predictive coding is typically, at least in my experience, taken to be a process theory. So it is taken to refer to the implementation, not to the overall mathematical framework. So I just want to be 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 clear that you know, to the extent to which we agree, you know, I think we both agree that there's there's a problem of Bayesian inference to be solved. But you know, I'm even a little unclear about what that means. If space time itself is up for grabs, then then why should we even be confident that perception involves a process of Bayesian inference about causes of sensory signals? But e but even so, you know, that I think that that you know, predictive processing, predictive coding is. Yeah, let, let's take it, let's label that as, as a claim about implementation and mechanism. And so, you know, is that something that you think stands up or is that something you think is not useful because, again, it's based on 
a figment of our conception of what brains are made of. Well, so in, in computational vision, so independent of neurobiology, there's a whole branch of visual you know, studies called computational vision and also in artificial intelligence where they're, they're not interested in particular you know, physiological implementations where they will also be doing this kind of predictive coding um, stuff, but but not based maybe on artificial neural networks, but yeah. not based on on anything specific um, to, to to brains, um, and and even more abstractly, there's many many that just do the mathematics of Bayes, Bayesian inference and just prove mathematically what the the posteriors would be and so forth without worrying about the details of an implementation in terms of of, of computing units, right? So that there there's so there's the theoretical level, then there's there's you know, in terms of Mars levels, right? So the computational theory, the algorithm, and and the the physical instantiation. And so I view <clears throat> predictive processing as more a computational level theory. But then the question about if, if space-time isn't fundamental, then how how do I go there, right? So I, I view <clears throat> each theory as having its domain. So for, for example, Einstein's theory of space-time has a particular domain of, of application. And and it, it it but it turns out that Einstein's theory falls apart at ten to the minus thirty three centimeters, which is why the physicists, these high energy theoretical physicists, are saying space time is doomed and we need to go outside of space time. So every every scientific theory has its domain where it works, and then it necessarily has its limits. No, there's no theory of everything. So so when I talk about predictive processing, I think of it in that scientific framework, which within its domain, it's a wonderful framework. But like any scientific theory, no theory is a theory of everything. And, and we'll always have to then say, what's the next level outside? Mm -hmm. So within one framework, Einstein's theory is wonderful. And we can do quantum field theory and do physics. But the physicists are now telling, you know, the high energy theoretical physicists are now telling, there's a deeper framework that will have Einstein's theory as a very special case, as a projection, and the, 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 these positive geometries. Right. So I'm saying the same thing. Project the predictive coding and all. In fact, cognitive neuroscience, which I am a cognitive neuroscientist, is wonderful within a particular limited framework. It, it is just that that framework, if you think it's fundamental, that's not fundamental. We have to go to a deeper framework in which we'll find that space time emerges and neurons emerge as a projection of a much deeper reality. All right now, you're going to have to you know steer us a little bit, but let, I mean because this is this is going to run. But I mean I think. Yeah, I'm trying. I think, I, yeah, I get the points. And of course, theories are, are approximations. I mean, they're abstractions by by definition. And you know, one way to think, and I wonder if you agree with this. One way to think of it is where we place our explanatory bets, because it's already the case that we know, you know, within neurons there are individual molecules, and you know, there are deeper levels of description of of neurons that we could appeal to, even without going to these new conceptions of space time and and positive geometries and everything. Um, yet, you know, there's sort of some maybe collective explanatory bet, and it may be wrong that focusing on on neurons is a useful level of abstraction by which to understand how brains work and and what they do. And it's not necessarily the case that the most fundamental level is the most useful level for a particular theory for a given theory. Now, of course, it's nice, and it should be a requirement that these levels of uh, description run through. That you know, one level of description doesn't contradict what might be happening at a more fundamental level. 
But there are reasons we have these different disciplines in the first place, um, because explanatory weights falls differently on the different levels. And of course, there's also an interesting mathematical frameworks of emergence and so on, where we can think of higher level descriptions, higher level properties of you know, having real causal power in, in systems. And, you know, I think that's a very interesting area, but, but it just begs the question. Like, I place my sort of explanatory bets knowing that there are deeper levels of description, not knowing how low they go, uh, recognizing that our picture of the brain is made up of neurons wired together is not actually how things are, but that it is a, a useful tracking of how things are that help in the explanation of properties of consciousness. I want to I want to ask about artificial intelligence soon, but before we do, Donald, um, something else I was curious to ask you about was what do we know at this stage about what is beyond space time? Like what is there anything concrete we can say at this stage, or is it merely speculation? Well, yes. Yeah, so there, the, what um, has been discovered in the last ten years is is truly remarkable. Uh, they, they have found geometric structures beyond space time, and also beyond quantum theory. So these there are no Hilbert spaces in in these new structures. So there's no quantum theory. There they found structures like the amplitudehedron hedron and, and um, cosmological polytopes, and then combinatorial structures that classify these, uh, things like decorated permutations. And, and what these things can do is remarkable. So the, if you try to you know, understand, say, how two gluons smash into each other and four gluons go spraying out, and you do that using um, quantum field theory, <clears throat> things that happen with the Large Hadron Collider or, or, or what, you know, various colliders, um, particle collisions, if you do the computation of the scattering probabilities, scattering amplitudes inside space-time using quantum field theory, Feynman diagrams, that the one interaction, two gluons in, four to six gluons going out, is hundreds of pages of algebra for one, one interaction, millions of terms. So it's really ugly. When you do it with the new positive geometries, you compute the same thing in three or four terms. So millions of terms go down to three or four, you get the right answer, um, and you see new symmetries that you can't see inside space-time. So, so what they're finding is the mathematic space-time is the wrong framework. It's 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 in some sense unnecessarily complicated because it's 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 a, a Rube Goldberg device in some sense. It, it's it's losing information about the symmetries and making the the computations unnecessarily complicated. So letting go of space-time is actually the reason it's all of a sudden getting, I mean, this month is the launch for this 10 million euro uh, push, international push on these positive geometries, because the the the, re the results in the last 10 years are so stunning that they, they realize this is the way forward. So now most of us in the neurosciences don't know that the, there's this whole group of high energy physicists who are saying space time is doomed and reductionism is doomed. The, the whole framework of reductionism, they're tossing it out. I mean, if, if you're interested, there's a, a a whole semester course at Harvard by Nima Arkani Hamed. If you just Google Nima Harvard Lecture One, you can see he explains why the reductionist paradigm is is dead and why space-time is doomed and, and why they're now going in with both feet outside of space-time. So, so that's, so yeah, there's, it's not just a hand wave 
it, this is the, the successes are so big in the last 10 years and the structures they found are so so stunning that that now big funding agencies are, are funding multinational uh, research on this and, and i'll just say on on the reductionist thing i mean anil's point is, is very well taken that within space-time there are many many levels at which we want to look at you know the neurons versus you know you know, maybe molecular levels or, or 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 so forth, but but what this and I agree with within the space time framework, absolutely that that's the right way to think about things. What level within space time are we are we doing our analysis? But what these guys are doing is upsetting the whole apple cart. They're saying space time itself, including all of its levels, is not fundamental. There is no, in some sense, more fundamental level of reality within space time because space time itself cannot be fundamental. It's doomed. As they, that's that's their 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 mantra. Space time is doomed. It was first put out there, by the way, as far as I know, two thousand five by the Nobel Prize winner um, David Gross, who won the Nobel Prize for his work in in um, the Strong Force. So in two thousand five, he basically said space time is doomed, uh, and it's been picked up since then. Okay. Okay. Um, Arnold, can I just ask you to comment on the assertion that? reductionism is doomed do you would you agree with that or would you have any disagreements there well I, I i'm not an expert on positive geometry so this is above my pay grade but there are yeah it's a couple of comments i think i can make about it firstly it's i mean i find it absolutely fascinating i find all these developments in physics absolutely fascinating um one question is whether we need to whether we need to go there so um i think from, from my perspective one has to have a very good reason for going beyond the the methods, the mechanisms, the 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 sort of constraints, if you like, of classical science, because they they are extremely successful, and um, they allow us to make predictions about everyday phenomena, which may be the things that we want to explain from a science of consciousness. Like, why do anesthetics actually work? I think you know, an explanation constructed in terms of things like neurons and chemicals and the stuff that is not fundamental, but but it's connecting levels. It's connecting one level of description with another. And um, you know, you, your explanatory power in general is sort of maximized at a particular distance between levels of description. If you go too far, you you kind of begin to lose explanatory power. Again, it's a bit like you know, to, to use one of Don's examples it'd be like trying to explain how microsoft word works in terms of voltage flows you know you just don't get much explanatory insight that way even though the voltage flows are more fundamental to the operation than lines of code um so yes it may be that we need to throw out space time um and it's doomed and and, and whatnot but it's not clear to me that doing so gives us additional explanatory power over the phenomena that we want to explain because you know this has happened before in physics for instance we threw out a certain conception of space-time a newtonian conception and replaced it with an einsteinian conception but it still meant that newton was is still used to do many many things it's not often you need to appeal to relativity to understand the understand phenomena um and there are many phenomena where it's just not it's just not really relevant at all so there's that question about utility and explanatory ambition. Reductionism is is fascinating. And here, it, it's something over which my thinking is, is changing quite a lot. Um, 
one topic that I was in, been interested in for a number of years and I've sort of come back to after a period of not really doing much work in it, I think since the last time we spoke, Don, probably, is emergence. Now, emergence has got this, slight, it's a bit like consciousness, really. It, it's It's got this um, slightly disreputable flavor. You know, what are you really talking about? You know, is it, is it some sort of spooky thing where things come into existence at a higher level that weren't there at the lower level? Um, that where you have you know downward causes that that can can influence lower level things and and break this relationship of what the philosophers call supervenience. Um, it's got this kind of disreputable air, and people go, oh, yeah, I don't know. But there's a, there's an everyday sense in which things certainly appear to be emergent. We look at it. We look at a bunch of a flock of birds wheeling away in the sky, and the flock seems to have an identity of its own that you know is not evidently traceable to the individual birds even though there's no mystery that a flock is made up of those of those individual birds um and so we've been working for well started this in 2010 and then picked it up a few years ago when i was when a number of more mathematically able colleagues of mine started working on this too to come up with measures of emergence that actually were practically useful and that captured this sense in which uh, a whole can be more than the sum of, of its parts. And of course, when you start talking in those terms, then, you know, what's the relationship to, to reductionism? Um, and the, the, the claim here, I think the way that I find most comfortable thinking here is that there's still reductionism holding in the sense that um, things flow through things run through nothing happening at one level contradicts a a, more, a a description that would be made at a, at a lower level if that description were made fully enough that said the it, there are it, there's, a, there's a definite sense in which it's reasonable to talk about emergent properties of complex systems um and one can do that in in various in various ways so one way you know we use we use information theory to basically say a, a, a large scale variable, be it a flock of birds or something, is is emergent if um, if its dynamics, if knowing its dynamics is not improved by knowing the dynamics of the parts that make it up. You know, there are, there are various ways to do this, but we can frame them in terms of, of information theory, and they shed light. You you can then talk sensibly about whether something is emergent, to what extent, to what extent the there you can you can think of the macroscopic variable as sending information or influencing its microscopic parts again without breaking the assumption that everything flows through so i think there's useful ways to think about think about emergence and and reductionism so ontologically things have to flow through there's no contradiction methodologically there are many reasons to challenge um reductionism it's not and this, this other it's not necessarily the case that the most fundamental level of description is the most useful. So reductionism as a, as a philosophy of reality ontologically is different from reductionism as a philosophy of scientific practice. And I, I disagree with that, but I think we, we take issue with reductionism in slightly different ways. Okay, interesting. Now, I want to move back to Do Donald here and ask about art artificial intelligence. Can AI ever reach consciousness? Do you think? Uh, well, the standard answer, the standard way of thinking about the problem is that again, AIs are physical systems that uh, a priori are not conscious, but if they have the right kind of 
um, physical complexity in their circuitry and so forth, then somehow um, the, the, the physical substrate somehow gives rise to the magic of consciousness. And so that's the way that that question is usually thought of and the way it, the answers are usually couched. And, and, and I reject that entire framework, right? So, so I, to be very, very clear, I, I, I think that space-time doesn't exist unless it's perceived and physical objects don't exist unless they're perceived. So they, so it's predictive processing taken to the extreme. They, they, they are there only in our experience and not otherwise. And so, so that that way of framing the standard way of framing the question assumes a physicalist ontology that 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 I reject. Uh, uh, so, but another question, the way I would then reframe it, of course, is the our space time is uh, what is space time? Then it's a headset. It, it's a VR headset that consciousness uses. Is is the way I think about it. So that's. So, so in other words, I have to start with consciousness first. So consciousness is fundamental. And I'm going to, my explanations go from a mathematical model of consciousness to show how I get space, time, and physics arising and, and things like neurons and brains. So it's a different arrow of explanation. Instead of starting with space, time, and physics and getting an arrow of explanation to get consciousness, I say, no, let's, let's go the other way around. I'm going to start with consciousness, qua consciousness, and I'm going to show that space, time, and neurons come out as, as just one fairly trivial headset that consciousness could use among countless many thousands, millions, trillions of other headsets. Space-time is, is just one, and, and a particularly, actually fairly simple one. So in that framework, then, what are AIs and what are machines? Well, they're, um, I'll put it this way. Right now, I have certain portals into consciousness. Right now, if I look at the screen, I, you know, I can see uh, Anil, and I can see Neil, and I, and I can see I have portals into your consciousness, right? Through through um, through your bodies, through your faces, and 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 now on a Zoom screen, through certain pixels on my Zoom screen, I've got a portal into what uh, you know Neil and Anil are thinking. Um, not not perfect, but but a, a genuine portal. So we know that there are portals into consciousness from this space-time headset, and we know we have one technology for making new portals into consciousness. The one technology that we do have is having kids. That technology works for making new portals into consciousness. So having kids is... So So I think that, yes, we could reverse engineer that and figure out how to make new portals, besides the, the, the having kids approach, I think we could figure out how to make new portals into consciousness that's beyond space-time, and that the technology that we do may look like artificial intelligence. But in this case, it would not be unconscious circuits and software giving rise to consciousness, it would be consciousness using certain parts of its headset to open up new portals through that headset into, into consciousness, right? It's a complete, so in other words, I'm, uh, I'm proposing that we need a completely different mindset. We're not building consciousness from anything inside space-time. Space-time in its complete total is nothing but a, a simple, a, trivial VR headset that some consciousnesses use, and that headset can give us portals into consciousness that are more or less clear, and we can develop technologies that open up new portals in that headset. So you can see my, my framework is entirely different. <clears throat> okay, okay, that's fascinating. Now, Arnold, what are your thoughts on this? Well, 
so many actually i mean i so i'm still fascinated by by this very different perspective um i i think just to comment a little bit on on what we what donald was just talking about i yeah i think one one worry one issue i have there is if if basically if the the premise of every question like is ai conscious or are and other animals conscious or are newborns conscious if we if we chuck out the premises of all these questions it becomes very difficult to answer them in a way that we can make use of in the world in which we live so i think that that's doesn't mean that there's a wrong way to do it um it just means you know i guess my motivation for for being in this field is is being able to understand for instance why anesthesia works why do people have hallucinations what's the experience of free will all about um and to try and construct explanations that have contact with the rest of biology and cognitive science, you know, not exactly as it is. You know, I'm very willing to to explore more. You know, not just neurons wired together, but other other conceptions, but basically materialist conceptions. I think an unstated difference between us, hopefully an evident one, but still an unstated one, is that I'm, I would say, a pragmatic materialist. You know, I, I'm agnostic about the nature of fundamental reality, whether it's positive geometries or or some or matter in some whatever complex form it is. Um, but I'm a pragmatic materialist in the sense that um, making the assumption that stuff exists and has material properties has been extremely successful in resolving many of the mysteries we have that we want to explain about the universe, about life, about um, the mind so far. And I think I can do that you know, from an agnostic perspective. You know, you can you can just follow that see how far it see how far it leads when it comes to ai i think it's it's um it's a very timely question and it's important to be able to say specific things about it because it's becoming you know even a political question like is gpt4 conscious if not could gpt6 be conscious and we need to have something to say about that question even if it's not something you can say with 100% confidence or have credence in it so um, Don is absolutely right. The prevailing way to think about that question is that there's physical substrate organized in particular ways. And in some ways, you know, consciousness is there too. You know, it's generated by or is, is part of, and I think we can, we can sidestep that. But that's a typical way to do it. I'm very glad, actually, Don, that you, you put it like that, because actually most many people make an even stronger basic assumption, which is that consciousness is a form of computation or a form of information processing. Um, and that conscious AI is simply a matter of either AI just getting smarter or programming um, some you know, explicit model theory of the sufficient computational mechanisms for consciousness into an AI system. Uh, and I think I would say that's the most widespread view. You know, reading around the literature, people take this view of, of what's called computational functionalism rather for granted that that. Um, the brain is some kind of computer and information processing is the language is, you know, is, is the medium of consciousness. I think this is a, I think this is wrong. And I'm a little bit on a limb thinking this, um, but the brain as a computer metaphor, I think is more or less outlived its utility. Now there are so many ways in which brains are not computers and information processing, I think is best thought of as a like an extrinsic viewpoint. We can use information theory as a generalization of statistics to describe systems. It doesn't mean that's what systems actually do. Um, and so there's a there's a case in which I also question this sort of premise. And the, the premise that I question is that computers, you know, that, that 
get the information processing right and consciousness pops out. I think there's good reasons to question that. And they both come from from three ways, actually. The first way is understanding why we even think that AI could be conscious. We are so suckered in by our anthropocentric and anthropomorphic biases here that we project consciousness onto things on the basis of superficial similarities. You know, we see we see consciousness where it isn't in, in many ways. Um, we associate it with language and intelligence because we're we think these things are distinctive and human and, and special and specially related to consciousness. Um, but there's no consciousness is not fundamentally about language or intelligence. It's as we both agree about raw fact of feeling. Um, so we have these biases and then we have this assumption that computers could be conscious if you get the software right. And there are good reasons now to question this too, because they make assumptions about the, about being able to realize what brains do in different substrates or in different systems. And there are actually very good reasons why that might not be the case for the kinds of things that brains do. They're so complexly integrated and enmeshed that it's actually quite implausible that arbitrary other mechanisms could implement the same functions. And there's also a question about substrate neutrality, that silicon is as good as carbon um, when it comes to something like the mind and consciousness. Again, there are good reasons to, to challenge substrate um, neutrality. In a brain, you can even ask, well, where is the substrate? I mean, this gets a bit to Don's point as well. You know, you can think of the neurons as a substrate and thoughts as the mindware or whatever, but really, you know, there's no sharp division in the brain between mindware and wetware as there is between hardware and software in a computer. And then my own specific ideas tie consciousness very tightly to, to life. Um, and so this really highlights one of the main differences between computers and living systems. You know, computers use energy, but they, they use energy to just map things from inputs to outputs. And it's, and they don't, they don't regenerate their own components through any process of anything like metabolism, whereas we do. And fundamentally, this process of predictive, the predictive processing is grounded in, in metabolism. You know, it's, it's the individual neurons maintaining their physiological energetic exchanges with their, with their surroundings. So if these ideas are on the right track, then consciousness Conscious machines would need to be living machines. And philosophically, this is a position of biological naturalism. Again, I don't know if it's true, but it's an idea that I think deserves consideration because showing that it's not true is also very, very difficult. So in brief, I think conscious AI is really much further away than most people think. Um, and this is because most people assume it's just a property of information processing. And even worse, a property of intelligence, a function of intelligence. Having said that, we are already living in a world where we will be unable to resist feeling as if AI systems are conscious. This is already happening. We've seen examples of this, Google engineers and, and so on. And this is a near-term, just, I think, fact. We will live in this world. And even if we know or are very confident that a machine is not conscious, we will still be unable to resist feeling as if it is in the same way that we can't unsee various kinds of visual illusions, even when we know what's going on. And there's a, there's a, there's a real social problem here because how do we deal with this situation? Do we care about these AI systems as we would care about things that we feel are conscious 
Well, if we do that, we're sacrificing human interests and the interests of things that don't have feelings. Um, the alternative is that we learn to not care about these things. But this is also psychologically very dangerous for us. It will brutalize our minds in some sense. If we treat things as if they don't have feelings, even though we feel that they do have feelings, Kant, who I think is a predecessor of both of ours, especially of, of yours in, in talking about the noumen and you know, the, 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 the unknowable nature of physical of, of reality, which will be hidden behind a, always hidden behind a sensory veil, and also talked about the brutalism of our minds in this sense. So there are dangers even to the discourse of conscious AI, even without um, its, its imminent reality. Okay, okay. Well, Anil, at the end of your, your TED talk, you said something that really grabbed me. It was, when the end of consciousness comes, there's nothing to be afraid of, nothing at all. So I want to get both of your perspectives on the implications of your theories for our understanding of death. And I want to switch back to Donald and then we'll come to you, Anil, for this one. All right. So Donald, can you give us your, your thoughts there? Well, well, yeah, in, in a framework in which space-time is fundamental and, and somehow brains generate consciousness, then of course the death of the brain is the death of your consciousness, period. There's no question. In in a framework in which consciousness is fundamental and space-time is is just a headset and that everything that you perceive is nothing but a virtual reality that, that you're projecting out there, right? It's, it's, this is predictive processing pushed to the limits. It's all prediction it, and, and it, it, the connection with reality, it, there's no isomorphism whatsoever with anything about reality. You're, it's, this is all a VR headset. So even the hands that I perceive right now are purely a construction inside my, it's like my avatar. If I'm wearing a VR headset and I see my avatar in a, in a, in a video game, uh, of course I could be taken in and, and identify with my avatar and then be worried if, if things are trying to hit my avatar and hurt my avatar. But if I realize I'm in a game and it's just my avatar, then I'm not, not too worried. So, so from this framework in which consciousness is fundamental and space-time is just a VR headset, then I, I don't know the answer, but it, but at least it opens up the possibility that one answer to what is death is it's just taking off the headset. And you know when you take off the headset, of course you lose your avatar, but you don't you don't lose your consciousness. So that's that's one way of thinking about. It. Now that's not why I am going after this, right? I mean it, it's an interesting um, side effect. What 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 I'm going after the reason I'm going after this is for also for pragmatic reasons. Um, very pragmatic, and it may not seem pragmatic, but I'm going with consciousness first because we've so far failed. I mean, I know all the, the key players in, in the game, and they're brilliant, and we've so far failed to explain any one specific conscious experience, right? I, I Time after time, you know, ask Tononi and Hammeroff and various people, so what specific conscious experience can your theory explain? You know, please, Stuart, give me one you know, specific conscious experience where in the orchestrated collapse of neuronal microtubule quantum states, that is the taste of chocolate or the smell of garlic. Can you give me even one? No. Tononi, can you give me one? You know, IIT Q-shape, that, that must be the taste of chocolate or the smell of garlic. No, can't get. So I'm I'm very pragmatic. I would like a theory that actually does something. So, so from my point of view, what I want to do is start with a theory of consciousness and actually predict scattering amplitudes. I would actually start with consciousness and get exactly the momentum distributions that the physicists have found for all the scattering amplitudes. 
In other words, I would like to be able to predict the headset from outside. So, so I'm very pragmatic. I want to show how physics arises precisely when we take consciousness as fundamental. Okay, Arnold. Um, I think you're a little unfair on on the state of consciousness science. I mean, um, saying we can't explain one specific experience is a little bit like asking an evolutionary biologist to say exactly why is this animal the specific way it is. I mean, you can give general things, but it's very hard to often hard to pr predict the specifics. And there are very interesting explanations of experiences happening. I mean, some of my own work at Sussex, we look at specific different kinds of hallucination. We have explanations for why hallucinations in Parkinson's disease are different from hallucinations in psychedelics. I mean, that's getting to a level of granularity that, that you know, I find quite interesting. And those are grounded again in, in different tweaks to the predictive coding mechanism. Tononi and IIT says very interesting things about the phenomenology of space, for instance, why space has this well, spatially extended character. Things in space have relations of near and far, and that makes some very interesting predictions about what happens when you inactivate specific parts of visual cortex. So I think, I think it's it's growing, it's incremental, but there are predictions that make connection with the specificities of different experiences. Now, when it comes to when it comes to this, the existential question of of death. Um, I'm also interested in this. Like I think you said it yourself, yourself, Don. But you know, the in your view. Well, yes, you know, you lose the avatar when that aspect of the of the projection breaks down. Well, you know, from the perspective, if if you are right, then this question about death really pertains to the avatar. You know, it doesn't make much difference to me as 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 I experience being me. You know, if I'm just an avatar, or if there's something else going on, if that's if that stops within this framework of space time, well, that's. That's typically the question about death that you know, we want to know. So I'm not sure it makes huge amount of difference. I do think there is, um, you know, there are interesting ways to think about this question more broadly. So you're right as well that from a more prosaic way of looking at things, when the brain stops, consciousness stops. And the reason I think this is really important to connect that to to what we feel about death is that many of us have had an experience of something like general anesthesia, which is as close to death as we'll ever get without dying. Um, and consciousness for, for us, for each of us, whether it's an avatar or not stops. I mean, there's no sense of time passing. You are gone and then you're back. So it's a little, it's a little flavor of the kind of oblivion that I you know, think is likely to accompany death and there's there's nothing there so the quote you know there's nothing really nothing to be afraid of of course that's that stolen from um a beautiful novel by julian barnes called nothing to be frightened of and of course there's a double meaning to it you know i'm not afraid of it there's nothing to be afraid of and nothing is pretty damn scary you know so we have this this dual response and that i left that um deliberately ambiguous but i think the not being afraid of it in in the former sense you know not existing at all, like the oblivion of general anesthesia. Well, of course, there's no suffering there. There's nothing at all. So why should we be afraid of of not existing? We have this also temporal asymmetry. We don't seem to worry about all the time we didn't exist before we were born, but we seem very worried about FOMO of the, all the time that that we'll miss in the future after after we die. Um, but yeah, the brain stops consciousness as we experience it 
as these con these self constructions also stops. Okay. Okay. And just one last question to to wrap up here. Um, Arnold, I owe you a massive thank you. You don't you you won't know this, but basically, whenever I watched your talk years ago, um, and I I learned that our conscious experience is a combination of sensory signals from the environment and our be our brain's best predictions about what caused those signals. It made me take the idea of gratitude a lot more seriously and really focus on making sure the predictions of my brain were as accurate as possible, but also that I was really grateful for what I did have in my life. And that was, was it wasn't a self-help talk, but it was the best self-help talk I've watched, you know? So I want to say thank you for that. <laughs> thank the, you. Question, the question is, um, what are the practical implications of both of your theories on how we live our lives and how has your approach to life changed whenever these understandings became became known to you. So Donald, can we go to you and then we'll, we'll conclude with an panel here. Well, the idea that um, we're not just objects in space-time, of course, is not new, right? The spiritual traditions have been saying that, mystical traditions have been saying that for, for thousands of years. And, and <clears throat> but they've not had any rigorous science behind them, right? So we've had mystical traditions saying this stuff, but 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 it's been the physicalist science um, that gives us technology. And then so is sort of the, uh, got a lot more um, belief from, from average people. So, but I think now we're in a position where the, there's a, possible convergence where we might be able to actually use the method the methods and mathematics of science to actually talk about consciousness prior to space-time and um so who knows that that may lead to all sorts of interesting convergences where we actually right the, the spiritual traditions talk about what they are their, their words are just pointers you don't take the word seriously they're just pointers the the reality transcends any pointer well the nice thing about scientific theories is yeah they're, they're just pointers too but the nice thing about scientific pointers is they tell you their limits einstein's theory of space-time tells you that it stops at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters it's over for space-time so so our science tells us this theory has this scope and these hard limits and every theory in science will have its hard limits so so i see going forward that the implication personally may be that <clears throat> there could be an interesting dialogue between science and spirituality. And I've already been involved in, you know, talking with the Dalai Lama and, and uh, Deepak Chopra and, 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 and you know, various spiritual tr traditions, Jewish as, as well as uh, um, um, Sufi and others, I mean, so, you know, and Christian. So this is very interesting. And, and again, in the same spirit, I take my science, which is uh, respectful, but hard-nosed, right? You, you have to be respectful and yet hard-nosed because ultimately we, we need things to be logically coherent and and, uh, and also to be consistent with, with data. So, so perhaps going forward, there'll be a, a very personal payoff in which we can get the best insights from the mystical traditions, give them a more rigorous framework, find out what parts of it are, are, are worthwhile and what parts are nonsense. And, and and move forward on a personal level. So science and spirituality may not need to be at odds. They may actually have a, a synergy that could lead to a, a you know very personal, helpful stuff. And I'm sure there'll be surprises for both in the process. I I listened to your conversation with uh, Rupert Spira, and it was amazing to see the synergy between between your thinking coming from completely different backgrounds. You know, so 
I yes. definitely think there's something there. Yes. Um, and Arnold, what what are your thoughts on this question? Well, I certainly agree with the complementarity. It's 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 a great thing to see. It's it's uh, it was one of the uh, motivations that got me into this area originally was was some of the original connections between Buddhism at that time and and neuroscience. So people like Francisco Varela, um, beginning dialogues with the Dalai Lama. Um, and now I think that's reaching out to other other traditions as well. And you know, my family's Indian, and there's a Hindu concept of Maya, which is super interesting. It's often thought of as illusion, but actually, I think more accurately, it's, it's sort of that aspect of the world that we that gives us the impression that our experience is real, which I think is a really interesting take on it. Um, and there is a convergence. So in, even before we get to the nature of space time, there's there's insights from. Um, Buddhism returning to Buddhism about uh, impermanence, the changing mm -hmm. nature of the self, the indirect nature relationship between experience and, and reality that line up very, very closely. And of course, the benefits are also therefore complementary as well. So, you know, meditative practice cultivates an attitude in which we can recognize this indirect relationship, this impermanence to, in, to some extent. And that, that, you know, for people, I don't have the discipline to meditate for the re time required, but it can be extremely beneficial in alleviating suffering just because you don't get sucked into this, assuming that what you experience reflects how things actually are and how things actually will be. You know, thoughts pass, self changes. So these these are all, I think, very, very valuable insights and, and have practical implications. So for my own personal lived experience of course i don't have the control anil sethu did something else to compare against but i do think it's changed how i live my life you know i do spend time and i do catch myself thinking you know as i would just walk around the world doing the washing up or, or, or picking up some food from the grocery store that what i'm experiencing is not really what's there you know it's a construction and there's a there's a one project i've been working on in particular i'm very excited about cashes this out in a very specific way which is um, that we all have different brains, so we will all experience things differently, even for the same shared objective reality. And we're familiar with this from, you know, other animals clearly have very different umwelts, will have different, very different perceptual environments, but human beings too. And I think we overlook this diversity. I mean, we recognize it with terms like neurodiversity, but they tend to get associated with conditions like autism and ADHD. And because it seems to us that we see the world as it is, and because we may have you know, sufficiently similar experiences that the differences are glossed over with language. Now, we overlook the fact that we have different experiences, individual ways of seeing. Um, and the novelist Anais Nin put it very nicely. We don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. And we have this project that I've been running in collaboration with Fiona McPherson at Glasgow and Collective Act in London, where we've we've very large scale citizen science projects where we've got 35,000 people each doing probably an hour or up to five hours of, of detailed experiments to characterize individual differences in many aspects of perception in color, in, in time, in music, in rhythm, in the, the impact of expectations. So lots, lots of different dimensions to try and surface for the first time really there's been lots of small scale studies of individual differences typically looking at one you know one aspect of perceptual trait psychology but we're trying to understand the big picture here and bring to light a richness 
in the diversity of our inner worlds. And I do think this is relevant to society now. In one sense, there's a parallel with biodiversity here. You know, we, we were familiar with the idea that a flourishing ecosystem needs many different kinds of species. So a flourishing society, if this analogy holds, you know, needs a variety of different kinds of ways of seeing. And then on top of that, recognizing that the way we see things is not the way things are and not necessarily the way others see them can engender a very useful humility in how we see the world. And that humility in how we see things, and this is my idealism, not the philosophical idealism, more the societal idealism shining through, optimism, let's call it for um, avoidance of confusion, <laughs> that that humility that we might cultivate about our way of seeing can also cultivate a humility about our ways of thinking, about our beliefs, and help push back a little bit against the, the dynamic of polarization and echo chamber that we find ourselves in. You know, getting out of an echo chamber requires knowing that you're in one. And most people don't know that they're in a perceptual echo chamber um, of their brain's making. And if we can recognize that, you know, then you might wonder what other echo chambers you might be in and have also just greater empathy and understanding of people trapped inside their own echo chambers without realizing it. For sure, for sure. Well, I want to say a huge thank you to you both for your time today. It's been absolutely fascinating to speak with you. We've barely scratched the surface on either of the, the two of you's work. So oh, there's no surface now. There's no surface. The surface is a figment <laughs> in space time. Come on. We you not listening? But for anyone interested in a deeper dive, um, I, I recommend picking up uh, The Case Against Re Reality by Donald and Being You by Anil. Um, I'll link to them in the description for this episode. So definitely um, get a copy of those. So thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate it. And I want to wish you the best with your research and everything going forward too. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Anil, as well. Likewise. Okay. Thank you, Neil. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with the Weekend University Premium Membership. This gets you access to your master library of over five years of psychology conferences, including over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, unlimited CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes, premium passes for our annual conference, online courses with Richard Schwartz and Deb Dana, and more. The cost is £97 for one year, which breaks down at around 27p per day. The best bit is you can try it out for 30 days completely risk-free, as all orders come with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're interested, please go to twumembers.com for more information.